Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. We've been in a study of Luke's gospel for the last few months, and if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at these 12 apostles. Two weeks ago, we studied the first six names on the list, Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, and Bartholomew, and then last week we looked at the next five, uh, Matthew the tax collector, Doubting Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and then Judas called Thaddeus. Today we're going to be studying one name, and that is Judas Iscariot, the infamous last name on the list. A lot to talk about with Judas, so he's going to get his own sermon this morning. We begin in verse 16, where Luke mentions Judas Iscariot, and, and at the end of the verse he says, which also was the traitor. That's what Judas is best known for. In fact, when he shows up in the New Testament, almost in every case, uh, the gospel writers mention this guy's the traitor, Judas, who also betrayed Jesus. That became really what he was best known for. Judas Iscariot, that's not his name, Iscariot, but it uh, rather denotes his homeland. He was from the city of Kerioth, which is about 23 miles south of Jerusalem. And so Judas was an exception to the others. The others were all Galileans. Uh, Judas Iscariot was not. He was from Judea. Judas appeared to be like the other men, like the other apostles. He followed Jesus just like them. He went out and preached the gospel of the kingdom, just like the others. But Judas was a fraud. And at the end of the Gospels, we find Judas Iscariot betrays Jesus. He hands him over to the Jewish leaders who wanted to kill Christ. And Judas will be forever remembered as the traitor. None of the others expected Judas to be a traitor. They all assumed that he had left everything to follow Christ, just like they had. In fact, when Jesus told his disciples, one of you is going to betray me, they all began to ask Jesus, is it I? Nobody pointed at Judas and said, oh, it has to be that guy. No, they thought he was just like them. Nobody suspected Judas. Nobody but Jesus. Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas was the traitor. He said in John 6, there are some of you that believe not, for, Judas knew, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, to the apostles, Will ye also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil." He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas was a traitor. When Jesus chose the twelve, he knew Judas would betray him to the religious uh, leaders who would kill him. Judas deceived many people, including the other eleven apostles, but he did not deceive Jesus. Jesus knew his heart all along. The main question I'd like to answer this morning is, what caused Judas Iscariot to betray Christ? What was it that would lead a man to follow Jesus for two or three years, uh, listening to him teach, seeing his miracles, even preaching as a representative of Christ on several occasions, only in the end to betray him to death? What would cause somebody to do that? What would cause Judas to be a a fake disciple for so long? The title of my sermon may give uh, away my conclusion to those of you who know 
your Bible, but I'm calling the title uh, Judas Iscariot, the Disciple with Two Masters. We're going to begin in Matthew 6. We're going to look at a very important teaching of Christ on the subject of money. Matthew 6.19 says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon, or money. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth. That's the beginning of Jesus' teaching. He mentions your money on earth won't last. Uh, thieves steal your money. Rust corrupts your money. But if you lay up treasures in heaven, it will last forever. Then he says, where your treasure is, your heart will follow. If you have a greedy eye, you'll be filled with darkness and evil. These warnings about greed conclude with the, the climactic statement, no man can serve two masters. You'll, you can't serve God and money. Judas heard these words from Jesus, and he apparently ignored them, because there is no example in the New Testament of the dangers of greed quite like Judas Iscariot. Jesus began teaching around the age of 30. He had worked as a carpenter. Some of you may be familiar with that. His father was a carpenter, and so he grew up in that tradition. He was a, either a stone worker or a woodworker. Luke 8 tells us that Jesus, well, fast forward to the Gospels. Luke basically leaves his job as a carpenter. I'm sorry, Jesus, not Luke. Jesus leaves his job as a carpenter and begins teaching. He begins his public teaching ministry. And so he receives financial support from others. Luke chapter 8, verse 1 says, It came to pass afterward that he, Jesus, went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom was cast seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. That means they were financially supporting Christ. Luke mentions Joanna. She was the wife of Herod's household manager. Herod was the tetrarch, sort of like a governor in today's government here in America. And so Joanna would have been a fairly wealthy woman. And she and many others, Luke says, contributed to Jesus out of their financial abundance. They sponsored the ministry of Christ so that he could go travel around teaching. Judas Iscariot was appointed the treasurer. He was in charge of keeping the money bag and using the funds wherever Jesus directed him. So when they needed to buy something, whether it be food or whatever else, uh, Judas Iscariot was their treasurer for the disciples in Christ. We see this mentioned in John 13. This is where Jesus points out that Judas was the traitor. Uh, John 13, 26, Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop. When he had dipped it, and when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot the son of Simon. After the sop, Satan entered into him, that's Judas. Then said Jesus unto him, that, that thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So there you see it mentioned, Judas was the treasurer. He kept the money bag. He was in charge of making 
necessary purchases, apparently, and also giving donations to the poor. He was the treasurer for Jesus and his 12 apostles. One key passage in John 12 gives us a glimpse into the heart of Judas Iscariot and his love of money. And that's the account of the, uh, Mary anointing the, the feet of Jesus. This is a popular story where Mary, sister of uh, Lazarus and Martha, she, she takes this expensive ointment, very expensive, almost in today's money it would have been about $25,000, and she pours it on Jesus' feet. And uh, Judas Iscariot responds by saying this was a waste of money. We see this in John 12. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon some who should, who should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. So Judas took advantage of his position as treasurer. Uh, he helped himself to the money bag, apparently on a regular basis. Judas was trying to serve two masters. He was a disciple of Christ, and yet he was serving money. He thought he could get away with following Jesus and get ahead financially at the same time. Judas was upset that Mary had wasted this expensive ointment on Jesus instead of selling it for money, not because he wanted the money to go to the poor, but because then he would get a chance to steal some of it. Now we'll look at Matthew's account of the rest of the story because Matthew gives us a little more detail about Judas's reaction, starting in verse 10. This is a continuation of the story. Jesus responds to Judas. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble ye the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For the poor, for ye have the poor always with you, but me ye have not always. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my, my burial. Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this that this woman hath done be told for a memorial of her. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me that I should deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Greed is what drove Judas Iscariot to betray the Son of God. He was so desperate for money that he stole from the donations that were entrusted to him. And when he didn't get what he wanted in the case of Mary's expensive ointment, he got offers from the highest bidders to betray Jesus. And from that time on, Judas looked for a good opportunity to hand Jesus over and collect his 30 pieces of silver. By the way, incidentally, that's the price of a slave in that culture. It was about $1,000 in our, our day's money, which if you think about it, that's really not that much for betraying uh, Jesus to be killed. Judas had two masters, and eventually, as Jesus predicted, Judas hated one because of his love for the other. Luke 22 explains why the chief priests needed Judas' help. Maybe you've wondered, couldn't they have just arrested him? Uh, Luke 22, verse 2, the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him. They wanted to kill Jesus, uh, for they feared the people. So they were afraid that there would be a mob reaction because of Jesus' followers. Then entered Satan into Judas, named Iscariot, being, one of the, uh, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and, and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of a multitude. So the religious leaders in Jerusalem hated Jesus and they wanted to kill him, but they were afraid of the people. 
Uh, Jesus had crowds of people that would follow him and listen to him teach. And so if they came and arrested him, uh, there could be a mob reaction and, and there could really have a war ensue. And so they wanted to arrest Jesus at a time when he would be alone, away from the crowds of people. And Judas Iscariot was the perfect inside man. He could set up the arrest to happen at a time when Jesus was away from people. And he chooses a time when Jesus is praying. Jesus regularly prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas knew this. He knew that this was his prayer spot when he wanted to get away from people and talk to his father. And so Judas figured this would be the ideal place to arrest Jesus. And he led the chief priests and soldiers to that place because he knew there wouldn't be a crowd. It would just be Jesus and his disciples. John 18.1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the, book, uh, the brook Kedron, where was a garden, into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto him, Whom seek ye? Then answered him, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto him, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. So there you see, Judas brings these soldiers to arrest Jesus at this time when he's praying alone in a garden with his disciples. It was the perfect opportunity. Matthew includes the detail that Judas led them to Christ and betrayed him with a kiss. Uh, it would have been dark there. It mentions that they had torches and lanterns, but you've got to think this is before electricity. There's no streetlights. And so it's pitch black outside. So how do you know which one to arrest? Well, Judas could get right up close, recognize Jesus, give him a kiss, and that's what uh, cued the soldiers in on who to arrest. Matthew 26, While he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. What led Judas to do this? It was his love of money, his greed. He had tried for years to serve two masters. He followed Jesus and stole from the bag. But as Jesus predicted, no man can do that. You'll love one of your masters more than the other, and you'll reject the less loved. For Judas, his love of money led him to betray Jesus. And Judas got his money. He got his 30 pieces of silver for betraying an innocent man to death. And in the end, he was more miserable than ever. And guess what he did with his money? The money that he worked so hard to get. The money that he was willing to betray his friend and savior with, or seemingly his savior, he gave it all back. The guilt of his sin was too much. Matthew 27 records how Judas's life ended. It says, When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned, in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed, and went and, and hanged himself. That's the end of Judas's life. Talk about a miserable end. No man can serve two masters. You'll end up loving one and hating the other. You can't serve God in money, Judas. This is what Jesus was teaching. But in the end, Judas ignored that warning. 
Judas betrayed Jesus for money. He pledged his allegiance to money over the Son of God. And he found that serving money is a miserable way to live. Greed is a cruel master. You'll never be satisfied. You'll always crave for more if you desire riches. We've talked about, uh, I think Malachi and I talked about a few weeks ago, some of these people, when they get hundreds of billions of dollars, I think Jeff Bezos, I think last week, surpassed $200 billion in his net worth. And yet they're never satisfied. They always have that urge to get more. And many times they end up miserable at the end of their life. Many times rich, famous people that everybody looks to and thinks, I want to be just like that. And then they end up overdosing or committing suicide. It's a miserable way to live. And it will lead you to sin in ways you never thought possible. Money promises happiness, but it can't deliver. And when you're serving money, you'll end up in a desperate and miserable condition just like Judas Iscariot. So what led Judas to betray Jesus? What would cause somebody to follow Jesus for years? To hear him teach and to see the miracles and in the end assist in his murder. It was greed. The love of money. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy, If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such, withdraw thyself. So Paul says, there were some people teaching in the early church that financial gain is godliness. That if you're living a godly life, you're going to be blessed with wealth and prosperity. Does this sound familiar? Uh, if you listen to much televangelists or people on the internet, this is a common message in America. And Paul includes this teaching in a list of things that are contrary to the words of Jesus. He further instructs Timothy to withdraw from anyone who teaches this. This idea that gain is godliness, this is known today as the prosperity gospel. And many false te teachers all over television, all over the internet promote this teaching. That if you follow the Lord, you'll be blessed with an abundance of money. This false teaching has been taught apparently since the days of Paul. But continuing in verse 6, we'll, we'll see Paul's corrective teaching. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Jesus doesn't promise you wealth, but he does command you to be content. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. This is, these are reasons you ought to be content. In verse 8, having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. You came into the world with nothing, you'll leave with nothing. So whatever riches you accumulate during your life, it all has an expiration date. It doesn't last. You can't take it with you. A lot of people in America especially spend their whole lives trying to get ahead financially, and then when they finally do have money, they retire and within a couple of years die. What a miserable life. Money is a cruel master. In verse 8, Paul says, if you have food and clothing, be content. If your needs are met, find contentment in that. Don't keep seeking to get more and more. If God's taking care of your necessities, don't focus on what you don't have, but rather be thankful for what you do have. Continuing in verse 9, Paul says, But they that will be rich, those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. What a great description of Judas Iscariot. Those two verses. He desired to be rich, and he fell into the snare, the trap of greed. His love of money led him to the greatest evil of all, betraying the Son of God. He erred from the faith that he claimed, and he pierced himself through with many sorrows. 
And his ultimate end was drowning in destruction and perdition. Those two verses sum up the life of Judas Iscariot. And they'll sum up your life if you follow Judas' example. That's what Paul is teaching here. Don't live for money. Don't trust in riches. Trust in God. Place your faith in him and live for him. Find your ultimate satisfaction in God, not money. Back to 1 Timothy 6, Paul continues instructing this young pastor Timothy to tell those who are rich at his church in Ephesus, uh, verse 17, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Those are all uh, terms of giving, that they be ready and willing and quick to give of their financial abundance, not just try to accumulate. Verse 19, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Paul tells Timothy to warn those with wealth in his church, don't trust in money, but in God. Be willing to do good, be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. All of those are ways of saying, give generously. Be willing to give of your money. Don't just try to keep accumulating more. Because if you live for money, you'll find in the end it doesn't deliver the happiness it promises. It actually leaves you wanting more. When you die, you can't take any of it with you. It's a fleeting and worthless master to waste your life serving. I want to give two practical questions for each of us this morning. First of all, how do you know if you have a money problem? How do you know if you love money? That's a, greed is a difficult sin to detect. There's some sins that you know if you're doing it or not, right? If you're committing adultery or cheating on your spouse in some way, you know that. There's no ambiguity. But if you're greedy, a lot of times uh, that's hard to detect, Because we can always look at somebody else with more money, with more possessions, and say, oh, I must not be too bad, because compared to them, you know, I'm dirt poor. And so how do we determine if we have a money problem? Secondly, what do we do about it? So we're going to start with the first one. Do you love money? Are you greedy? The reality is, in America, pretty much all of us can be described as rich. Uh, First Timothy, these warnings are given to those who are rich in the world. Compared to people in times past, or people in other countries today, An average or even below average American today is among the wealthiest people in the history of the world. You can actually go online. There's a website. You can type in your income and see what brackets you're in. Uh, If you make $20,000 a year, which is considered poverty in America, that puts you in the top 10% of wealth in the world today. Just think about that. And and if you go back in history, it's it's even more astronomical. We're, We're richer today. An average American is richer today than kings would have been in times past. So I'm not saying that just because you live in America, we have far more than most people, that we're necessarily greedy, sinful people, and we need to just give it all away. That's not my point. But I do think we should recognize that we have much more to be concerned about with regards to greed than much of the world. Just because you don't have much by American standards doesn't mean you're not rich compared to the rest of the world. So we need to constantly evaluate ourselves in this area of greed. So how do we know? How can we detect if we have a problem with money? I want to answer that by introducing a new slogan. Maybe you've heard of WWJD. I remember when I was a kid, that was a big deal. I don't think people say it too much anymore. What would Jesus do? They used to give out bracelets, WWJD. I'm going to tweak that a little and say, what would Judas do? If we want to look at ourselves and ask, what does greed look like? I think a good question is, what would Judas do with money? And if we find ourselves aligning with Judas, then we know we have a problem. Number one, 
What would Judas do? Judas wouldn't care about the needs of others. Back to the passage in John 12, we're told this of Judas. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. So Judas was not concerned about others. He was not concerned about the poor. He was only concerned about himself and getting ahead. If you want to know if money has too high a place in your life, ask yourself, are you concerned about the needs of others? Uh, listen to the words of 1 John. Ask yourself if this describes you. 1 John 3.17 But whoso hath this world's goods, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Do you have compassion on those in need and seek to help? If not, you may be thinking about money like Judas. Number two, Judas would steal even from God. Now this is a little bit more of an obvious one. If you're stealing, you obviously have a money problem. And stealing comes in different forms. It's not always as overt as Judas taking money from their bag. It may be stealing time from your employer by not working while you're on the clock. Maybe lying on your tax return to get a bigger refund. Maybe paying somebody under the table. All of these are ways of stealing. And all of them reveal that money is an idol of our hearts. Uh, Ephesians 4.28, Paul gives this instruction, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. That's a very countercultural view of work and finances. Paul says you should labor working an honest job so that you would have something to help others with. You work so that you can have in order to give to someone in need. Do you and I think that way about our money? Do we think that way about our work, that we are working ultimately not just to accumulate wealth, but to give, to have more to give? Do we try to earn money not for our own interests, but in order to help somebody else? What would Judas do? Number one, he would not care about the needs of others. Number two, Judas would steal even from God. And number three, Judas would think a financial sacrifice made in worship to Christ was a waste of money. I get this from that story in Matthew 26 or, or John 12, the parallel accounts, where Mary pours out her expensive ointment on the feet of Jesus. I want you to listen to Judas's uh, response. We know this is Judas speaking from the John passage, but Matthew 26 says, when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, they're angry, saying, to what purpose is this waste? Judas considered it a waste to spend this valuable ointment on Jesus. Uh, he, we should have just sold it for money so that he could take it. He considered it a waste to give something valuable like this to Christ. Now, I don't think we have a huge problem with this in our church. I'm not calling you all Judases. You need to give more to the church. That's not the point. I think uh, our, our offerings, actually, we have a higher percentage of giving in this church than any church I've ever seen. As far as the people that come, almost everybody contributes regularly to our church. So I'm not at all implying that there's Judases among us. But even some of us who give financially to the church, we can be thinking internally that giving is a waste. We might give online or place money in the offering plate when it passes, but it's very reluctant. We feel like we could use our money better than to give it to a church or to a missionary or to some other cause that advances the gospel. And when giving in worship to Jesus becomes a waste, you're thinking about money like Judas. Paul gave this instruction in 2 Corinthians 9. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Does that describe you? I'm not asking, do you give? I think most of us, almost probably everybody here, gives on a regular basis, but do you give cheerfully? 
Or do you feel in your heart that it's a waste? That it's a waste to spend such money on Christ? Do you think about money like Judas? Hear the warning of, Judas, of Jesus in Luke 12. He said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. I think it's a good warning for each one of us in America. Beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Judas ignored Christ's warning. He heard Jesus teach about money. He was there when Jesus taught that you can't serve two masters. He taught the disciples to seek the kingdom of God, to trust him to add everything else, instead of focusing on accumulating wealth and possessions for yourself. But Judas ignored the warnings, and he paid the ultimate price. In a sense, he didn't sell Jesus. He sold himself. He gave in to serve greed and his love of money. And in the end, his life was miserable and guilty, which led to his suicide and eternal punishment. Jesus said of Judas, The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. Judas is the perfect example of how the love of money leads to all kinds of evil. You can be like Judas if you choose. You can deceive others around you into thinking you're a genuine Christian, a follower of Christ. You can ignore the warnings and try to serve two masters, but I pray that you won't. And I'd like to offer you an alternative. If you've been convicted about the way you handle and think about money, I want to show you a better way. First of all, treat money as a tool, not as an end in itself. Not everyone who has money is necessarily sinful and greedy. Okay, we saw examples, actually, in Luke's gospel where people uh, like Joanna were very wealthy people. And they gave of their abundance to the ministry of Christ. They funded his ministry. God uses people with means to further his work. Paul was able to be a self-supporting church planner because he had a specific skill that enabled him to make money everywhere he went. It's not wrong to make money. We all, we all make money. We all have to deal with money. It's not wrong to have money so long as money doesn't have you. And so think about your money as a tool and not as an end in itself. We're not trying to just accumulate and accumulate and build more and more of our net worth, but we're trying to use money in the best possible way to accomplish God's work in the world. And that will require a bit of thought on our parts. This is not always easy to figure out. Think of others you could help. And don't fall into the trap of just accumulating as much as you can for yourself. Lastly, don't serve two masters. Make sure Jesus is first in your life. Matthew 13, Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus is the treasure worth giving up everything you have. Jesus is the pearl worth selling everything to buy. And make sure your life shows that you value him more than anything else. Ask yourself, over this last week, does the way that I've used money, does the way that I've thought about my work, show that Jesus is number one in my life? Or am I serving two masters? Make sure your life shows that you value him more than anything else. We saw a good uh, contrast of this in John 12. We see Mary who has this expensive ointment. Who knows where she got it? Maybe it was passed down to her. No doubt the most uh, valuable possession she had. And she poured it out at Jesus' feet. She gave it in worship to Christ. And then you see Judas, who loved Jesus so little, he was willing to sell him for the price of a slave. The question is, who are we more like? Do we consider it a waste of money 
to take that $25,000 ointment and put it on Jesus' feet? Is that kind of radical worship absurd to us? Or do we treasure Jesus above everything else? Don't let another master compete with Christ. Find your greatest satisfaction and fulfillment in a relationship with him. In other words, don't live for money. Live for Jesus. You'll find that in the end, he's a far better master to spend your life serving. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take these truths of your word that are taught all throughout the Old and New Testament about finances, and that you drive it deep into each one of our hearts. I know this is a, a sensitive subject. Nobody likes to evaluate themselves in this area because, again, as Americans, we, it's just so easy for us to fall into the American dream, to live for money, to try to accumulate as much as we can for ourselves, to be very self-centered in the way we think about this. pray that you would give us the Holy Spirit on these issues, give us your heart, help us to think more carefully about our finances and ultimately about why we're living. Why do we go to work each day? What's the point of this? What is the end goal here? Help us not to make money our ultimate master, but to make you our master and to find satisfaction and fulfillment in living a life in service to you. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.